0: Hello, and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 66, The Myths of Barbarossa. Now, we've just spent 15 episodes talking about the life and times of the actual Frederick Barbarossa. Exciting as his life was, his afterlife is almost as interesting. Don't panic, I will not go on for 15 episodes talking about the perception of the great emperor. Just give me 30 minutes, and I promise, it's worth it. But before we start, as always, a reminder... The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons, and you can become a patron too, and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans, or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Anemi and Jim, who've already signed up. Ananami, thank you very much for your regular support on Facebook, it's much appreciated. As we mentioned last week in its immediate aftermath, Emperor Barbarossa's death was seen as a bad one. Drowning in a river that all his companions had crossed without a glitch, taken just when he was going to Jerusalem to fulfil what he believed to be his destiny, and not having confessed before he died. This could only mean one thing. God disapproved of the venture and of the man. It took until the mid-13th century for chroniclers and acolytes of the Hohenstaufen to wash off the stain of the unconfessed death. They alter the story so that Barbarossa gets dragged out of the river half dead but fit enough to properly confess before dying. That helps his legacy but does not yet make him the shining beacon of the imperial dynasty. Once the House of Hohenstaufen had fallen, the Holy Roman Empire went into a chaotic period called the Interregnum. Popular myths sprang up talking again of the last emperor who would bring about the end of time. But that emperor was not Frederick Barbarossa, but his grandson, Frederick II. Frederick II had died in Sicily in 1250 and is buried in Palermo, a long way from Germany. Paper propaganda had falsely declared him dead several times before he actually died, which is why rumours kept going round that he was still alive. False Fredericks would appear in Germany, claiming to be the emperor himself, or at least his true-born son. One of these, a man called Thiele Kolop, manages to set up his own court, corresponds with several princes, takes over the city of Wetzlar, and had to be brought down by an army sent by King Rudolf of Habsburg. As time went by, the probability of the actual emperor coming back turned into a myth, that Frederick II was simply asleep, waiting for the moment his people really needed him. Once he wakes up so the folktales believed he would perform the acts of the last emperor, take Jerusalem, put down his crown in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and bring about a thousand-year-long reign during which Satan would be chained. The hope for the return of the Emperor Frederick remained strong for centuries, and a many pseudo-Fredericks emerged, mainly in periods of stress and turmoil. When the Black Death hit in 1348, the Franciscan friar John of Winterthur reported alarming tales of Frederick's imminent return. Frederick, he reports, would bring full justice to everyone. Stolen property will be returned to widows and orphans and, great news, poor maidens would be married to rich men and working-class lads to wealthy cougars. That he thought was great, but what frightened the friar was that the emperor was eager to persecute the clergy so that, if they have no other means of hiding their tonsus, they will cover them with cow dung. The word that describes that kind of headgear has no room in a family show, though it is apparently also a popular card game. Just as the Reformation is getting going, the figures of Frederick II and Barbarossa start to merge into one. In 1519, the Folk Book of Emperor Frederick Barbarossa appears in print. It offers a weird concoction of historic events of both emperors, but ascribes them all to Barbarossa. It also made up a few, including that Barbarossa had been betrayed to Saladin by the Pope, that he would then have taken revenge on Venice, where the Pope allegedly lived, and then the Pope, in his extreme arrogance, ordered Frederick to kneel and put his foot on the imperial neck, a treatment he accepted out of misguided piety. And Barbarossa did not die in the River Salef, but still lives in a hollow mountain. And he would rise again, and so the unknown authors believe, would return to punish the clergy. And with that, his avatar is off to the races. From this point forward, at all the major junctions of German history, the shadow of the old emperor appears, every time taking on a new guise that reflects the dreams and the hopes of his people. The first to press the mythical Barbarossa international service are the Protestants. The story of Pope Alexander III putting his foot on the neck of the German Emperor is reprinted ferociously and formed part of the anti-papal and anti-clerical propaganda. Luther himself believed that his patron, the elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony, who was a descendant of Barbarossa, had fulfilled part of the prophecy by freeing the Church from the shackles of papal control. Barbarossa, in this Protestant interpretation, was the defender of the true faith against the corrupt Church hierarchy. It's around this time that the location of the hollow mountain where Barbarossa allegedly sleeps shifts to the Kiffhäuser, the central part of a small mountain range in Turingia. The plateau of the Kifhäuser had been the site of a castle originally built by Henry IV and enlarged by Barbarossa. The Pfalz of Tileda, site of several royal assemblies, lies just below the mountain. Barbarossa had been there, though it was not one of his habitual residences. Why he was believed to be there and not somewhere near, say, Gelnhausen or Kaiserslautern, the places he had built and stayed very regularly, is unclear. It may have to do with a battle during the Peasants' War, or an event in 1546, where 300 people saw an old bearded man walking through the woods and mistook him for the ancient emperor. In the subsequent centuries, Barbarossa disappeared from the people's minds. The Enlightenment and its total disdain for the Middle Ages had no room for any such old folk tales. Barbarossa became nothing but a silly fable. It was the Romantics who rediscovered the Hohenstaufen, initially as a source for dramatic stories. The tale of Agnes, daughter of Barbarossa's half-brother, who eloped with Henry of Brunswick, member of the House of Welf and eternal enemy of the Hohenstaufen, was turned into some Germanic Juliet. There were also nearly a hundred plays or fragments of plays about Conradin, The last of the Hohenstaufen, who ended his life being beheaded on the main square of Naples, upon orders of Charles of Anjou. That story provided an ideal foil to project all the great Germanic values onto Konradin and paint Charles as a perfidious Frenchman. But the actual resurrection of the myth of Barbarossa was down to the Brothers Grimm. The Brothers Grimm, you know, the ones who wrote Cinderella, Rumpelstiltskin, Snow White, Hansel and Grittel, Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, Puss in Boots, The Thing About Kissing a Frog, and 575 more. Essentially, most of Disney's movie output before they hit upon Marvel movies and the concept of massively overstretching minor characters in Star Wars sagas. Anyway, one of those 585 tales was a brief story that Barbarossa was sitting at a stone table inside the Kyffhäuser mountain, his beard already long enough to go twice round the table and waiting to be woken. He checked from time to time whether the ravens were still circling the mountain, and as long as they did, he would sleep for another hundred years. In 1816 this story catches fire. The Napoleonic wars have just ended. Led by Prussia, many German states have fought and defeated the French at the Battle of the Nations near Leipzig and at Waterloo. For the first-time volunteers, the Freikorps fought not for some prince or king, but for themselves, their freedom, and their country. The glorious war was followed by a disappointing peace. The great powers, England, Austria, Russia, Prussia, and Bourbon France, agreed on a system of mutual support of autocratic rulers. This was a bitter pill for both the liberal and the nationalists, who had dreamed of a unified Germany with some form of democratic participation. Similar to that other fragmented country in Europe, Italy, the Germans desperately searched for a national narrative that fit with their hopes and beliefs. I talked a bit about that in episode 20, A Blank Canvas, where we explored how the Ottonians were used and abused in the various definitions of national destiny. Otto the Great and Henry the Fowler were major components of this history-making, but the myth of Barbarossa is the granddaddy of them all. The reason he is so compelling is that his story includes a rebirth of the broken empire. Barbarossa had inherited a realm torn apart by civil war. That civil war could at least partially be blamed on foreigners, more specifically the popes. Barbarossa had brought back peace and unity, let others participate in the state, rebuild the honour of the empire and faced up against the most powerful force of his time. That fits neatly into what the pre-1848 generation dreamed of, unity, freedom and national pride. Friedrich Rückert brings it all together in a poem from 1817, and it goes like this. The ancient Barbarossa, Frederick, the Kaiser Great, within the castle's cavern, sits in enchanted state. He did not die, but ever waits in the chamber deep, where hidden under the castle he set himself to sleep. The splendor of the empire he took with him away, and back to earth will bring it when dawns the promised day. This poem used to be the German equivalent of Paul Revere's Ride, compulsory reading for school children after 1871 and shaping many an impressionable mind. In 1848 a group of patriots climbed the Kifheiser mountain, raised the black, red, gold flag of the national revolution and sings a poem meant to waken the ancient emperor. Barbarossa, we heard, did not wake up. The Barbarossa enthusiasm did have his critics though. Heinrich Heine, most prominent amongst them. Heine wrote a poem, Germany, A Winter's Tale. It's a satirical look at what he saw as the backwardness of the country in 1844, its obsession with the Middle Ages and militarism that made him fearful of the future. His poem begins with, Denk ich an Deutschland in der Nacht, bin ich um den Schlaf gebracht. Which translates as, When I think of Germany at night, it puts my sleep to flight and other great ones, like his observation about the Prussian soldiers. Als hätten sie den Stock verschluckt, mit dem sie einst geschlagen. Again, translates as, as if they had swallowed the rod they had once been beaten with. Okay, full disclosure, I love Heinrich Heine. Heine believed Barbarossa to be a useless old relic that epitomizes the parochialism, the dream of ancient glories that blinds his compatriots to the ideals of liberty, freedom and brotherhood, the French Revolution had created. In his poem, Heine goes straight for the mythical emperor's juggler. In a dream, he finds the emperor, not sitting at his table, but shuffling through the vast halls of his lair, filled to the brim with weapons and thousands of sleeping soldiers, all waiting for his call to rise up and free the German people. Asked why he has not yet acted, Barbarossa replies that he is still not quite happy with the number of horses at his disposal. I wait until their number is complete, and then I will strike and free my people, who will wait faithfully for my arrival. Vapiano, Vassano, he says. Having delighted the old emperor with tales of the guillotine and the demise of Louis Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette, he goes, Sir Redbeard, I cried out loud, you are a mythical creation. Go off to sleep. Without your help, we'll work out our salvation." The Republicans would laugh at us if a ghost with scepter and crown came marching as the head of our ranks. They'd laugh us out of town. It would be best if you stayed at home here in the old Kiffhäuser. When I consider the matter carefully, it's clear we don't need a Kaiser. As ever so often, Heinrich Heine was right. But again, as ever so often, his calls remained unheeded. A Kaiser duly appeared in 1871. Wilhelm I, a man with a luxurious white beard that would make any hipster go green with envy. In this next iteration of the Barbarossa myth, he, Wilhelm I, became Barba Blanca, the white beard, successor to Barbarossa, the red beard, and the man who fulfilled his mission as savior of the country. Now, For that to happen, a number of obstacles had to be overcome. The first one was that the Hohenzollern did not have much affinity to Barbarossa. The kings of Prussia were relative nouveau-riches amongst the great German families. Their ancestors had been mere counts, whilst the other major families of the empire, the Wittelsbachs of Bavaria, the Vettines of Saxony, and the Zeringers of Baden had already been imperial princes in the 12th century. Moreover, the Holy Roman Empire of Barbarossa was usually associated with the Habsburgs, the Prussians' main rivals for dominance in Germany. The politician and historian Johann Gustav Dreusen tried to bridge the gap. He pointed out that the Hohenstaufen had also risen from obscure beginnings to Dukes of Swabia in 1079 and had proceeded from there to unite the empire. More than that, Barbarossa's anti-papal policies mirrored those of Protestant Prussia. At the same time as Droysen was moulding the 12th-century Emperor into a 19th-century role model, genuine historians got to work on the Middle Ages. The towering figure here is Wilhelm von Giesebrecht, whose monumental Geschichte der Deutschen Kaiserzeit or History of the German Imperial Times graced most middle-class households in the same way as Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire was de rigueur on British bookshelves. Now, I have to make a confession. I do have a soft spot for Giesebrecht. Sure, he's a product of his time and some of his views can make your toes curl up. And sometimes his findings have been overturned. But here's the detail. He sticks fairly close to the primary sources as they were available then, and most importantly, the man can write. Write in a way that I find it hard to put the book down. Combine that with the need for a national narrative, and it's no wonder that Giesebrechts' history of the Ottonians, Salians and Stauffer captured the imagination of the nation. Not just that, but the proper investigation of the medieval history triggered the famous Historians' Debate of 1859-1862, to 1862, which was not just a debate about historical events, but also a debate about whether Germany should be a Prussian-led, smaller Germany or an Austrian-led, larger Germany. We discussed that in episode 20 already and after several attempts to write it up again in a different way, I concluded the way I laid it out then was still the best. So to save you to go back to episode 20, I will just repeat what I said then. In the Prussian corner we have Heinrich von Siebel eighteen seventeen to eighteen ninety five, an accomplished historian and like Giesebrecht, trained by the grandfather of modern science of history, Leopold von Ranke. He argued that Henry the Fowler was the greatest Etonian ruler, since he focused on unifying the German stems, defending the realm against the Magyars, and expanding eastwards. Among the later rulers he liked Henry II and Lothar III, but his biggest hero was Henry the Lion, who drove that eastward expansion into Pomerania. On the other hand, he thought Otto the Great was misguided and did terrible harm to Germany by going after the imperial crown. The entanglement in Italy forced him and his successors to waste blood and treasure in fruitless fights with the Italian states and most of all the papacy. Taking the eye off the ball in Germany allowed the local princes to expand their power, which ultimately led to the collapse of central authority in Germany, and all the misery ever since. His bottom line was that Germany should have focused on inner unity and coherence and avoid entanglement with foreigners in general and Roman Catholics in particular. Barbarossa's policy in Italy was, in his eyes, a fatal mistake. In the Austrian corner we have Johann von Ficker, 1826-1902, unfortunate name but also a gifted writer. He argued that the imperial project of Otto the Great and Otto Third was neither a true empire nor a nation-state, but an ambitious and benevolent attempt to bring together the members of the multiple nations under one roof. It was no coincidence that this model of the reign of Otto the Great looked a lot like the then Austrian Empire, which comprised many nations including Hungarians, Czechs, Poles, Croats, Slovaks, Slovenians and many more, who allegedly lived happily under Emperor Franz Josef's benevolent rule. Otto the Great and also Barbarossa, though to a lesser extent, were his heroes. Though von Siebel took the Prussian position, in inverted commas, the freshly made Kaiser Wilhelm I, influenced by his son, did not go along with it. Instead, they went for some sort of pick and mix, that they then consolidated in the next iteration of the mythical Barbarossa. They took a bit of Droysen's notion of Barbarossa as an anti-clerical ruler who consolidated the empire after a period of weakness inflicted by foreign powers. They took von Siebel's notion that the Italian entanglement was the source of all evil, but Barbarossa, so the story goes wanted to go east, but was held back by the nasty Popes and the treacherous Princes. And they took a bit of von Ficker when they emphasized the universal nature of Barbarossa's title as Emperor. That way, they could draw a direct line from the First Empire, the Holy Roman Empire of Barbarossa, to the Second Empire, that of the Hohenzollern of Wilhelm I of Barbablanca. And this happened quite quickly. When Wilhelm I addressed the Reichstag on March 21st, 1871 – two months after the formal creation of the Kaiserreich – the emperor was sitting on a bronze throne that had been made for Emperor Henry IV around 1075 and had stood in Goslar for centuries. And now the weirdness factor is turned up to 11. Bismarck sends out an expedition to Tyre to find the bones of Barbarossa. The plan is to bury them in Cologne Cathedral which had been left half-finished since 1473. The plans had been underway to complete the works, these accelerated after 1871, and in the midst of the Kulturkampf, the Protestant state of Prussia funded the completion of a Catholic cathedral to house the bones of an emperor who would have much preferred to be buried in a traditional mausoleum of his ancestors, the Cathedral of Speyer. Next step was the rebuilding of the Pfalz in Goslar the great palace that Henry III had built in the 11th century. By now, that building had been in a desolate state. the I began its renovation in 1866, and by 1876 the Ministry of Culture asked for proposals to decorate the main hall. The project was won by Hermann Wieslitzinius, a professor at the Academy of Fine Art in Dusseldorf. He and his assistants will spend the next 20 years producing a total of 53 paintings. I've unfortunately not seen it myself, but it's high up on my list of places to visit, because it sounds proper mad. The fresco cycle starts off with Sleeping Beauty as a personification of Germany on one wall, and Emperor Wilhelm on the opposite side as the prince who awakens her. Below Wilhelm is Barbarossa's awakening, who, sword in hand, looks towards the great central painting of the foundation of the Second Empire, more on that in a minute. And Barbarossa appears several more times, once kneeling before Henry the Lion in 1176, which symbolizes the treachery by the princes that led to the downfall of imperial power. Opposite is a picture showing Henry the Lion kneeling before Barbarossa at the Diet of Erfurt in 1181, interpreted at the time as Barbarossa's great political achievement, but as we now know, His political low point. Next, he appears at Besançon, rejecting the demands of Pope Hadrian IV to be his vassal. This symbolizes, together with the opposite picture showing a caged Pope Gregory VI being taken into exile across the Alps by Henry III, the firm rejection of papal interference in German affairs. And then, finally, he has a great stage appearance in a picture showing his last battle against the Turkish Sultan at Konya. What that is to symbolize is unclear. Maybe it was simply the only major open battle he had won. Pushing siege engines with hostages chained to the front just does not have the same vibe. It all culminates in a huge allegorical image that shows the creation of the second empire. Willem I is shown on horseback King Ludwig II of Bavaria hands him the crown, something that had never happened, for once because there is no crown, and second because Ludwig II had accepted a busload of cash for not opposing the creation of the empire, but he did not think that was enough for him to leave his kitsch castles in Herren-Chiemsee, Lindehof or Neuschwanstein, which he had built with that exact same cash. Then you have the people who were in fact involved in the real world creation of the empire. There are the other princes, nodding approvingly, Otto von Bismarck, swinging a distinctly unimpressive hammer onto the foundation stone, and Field Marshals Moltke and Ruhn looking mightily pleased with themselves. They share their space with some allegorical figures. Alsace and Lorraine personified as maidens who enthralled by Wilhelm's beard, and then up in the sky there is Queen Louise, the temporal saint of Prussia, holding the medieval imperial crown above her son's head whilst Barbarossa, as a godlike figure high up in the heavens, points to the events below as if to give his blessing. Now that's pretty weird as it is. But for anyone who did not get the message, there are two equestrian statues outside the rebuilt palace, featuring Frederick I Barbarossa and William I Barba Blanca. The link between the First and the Second Empire is made stone and bronze. Fun fact! Once the fresco cycle was completed, the new emperor, Wilhelm II, Kaiser Bill to you and me, did not like it much. Neither he nor any other member of the imperial family went to the grand opening. Kaiser Bill objected to the concept that the Second Empire was described as a culmination of German rather than Prussian history, and just generally the notion that anyone else, other than his grandfather, had anything to do with the success of 1871, and in particular not that Bismarck guy who he had just fired. To ensure that the new imperial ideology was made into an even more impressive building, Kaiser Bill got closely involved with the other, more astounding monument to Barbarossa, the Kiffhäuser Memorial. Though this was built over the mountain in which the old emperor allegedly slept, it was designed and built not as a memorial to him, but to glorify the new emperor, Wilhelm I, and only Wilhelm I, nobody else. The monument had been proposed and financed by the Army Veterans Association. It is placed on the site of the medieval castle of the Kiffhäuser, which dates back to 1118 and stretched 600 meters along the ridge of the mountain. The largest medieval structure left is the so-called Tower of Barbarossa, about 20 meters high, at one end. Now the monument itself was built at the other end. It is 81 meters tall and 130 meters wide carved partially into the mountainside and visible for miles and miles around. Its main feature is a 9.7 meter tall statue of the Emperor Wilhelm I as its focal point accompanied by personifications of war and history. Behind the statue rises a 54 meter tall tower topped by the non-existent crown of the Second Empire. Barbarossa is there. I couldn't really ditch him completely, but he's down at the base of the Tower his statue looking somewhat unfinished, mainly for financial reasons. He's just about to stir, though he's no longer needed, as Willem had done the deed he never got round to. Kaiser Bill, it seems, had no need for medieval relics. And he did not much need for anyone else who could detract from his grandpa's achievement. When the Veterans Association, who, after all, funded the whole enterprise, Suggested to add some cannons and military standards to the complex, he rejected it. Same goes for statues of the main architects of the New Reich, Bismarck, Moltke at a minimum, maybe Scharnhorst. No, nobody. Just Grandpa. This time, it was Bismarck who refused to come to the great opening. After the fall of the monarchy in 1918, the right-wing nationalists evoked the spirit of the Kiffhäuser, an idea of rebuilding the nation from its ruin, preferably by some great man. That, we all know, backfired pretty badly. Hitler and the Nazis appropriated not just the Kiffhäuser, but most of German history, including Barbarossa, and twisted it to their needs. The concept of the Third Reich is a natural next step after Barbarossa's First Reich and Wilhelm I's Second one. And the notion of the Reich that lasts a thousand years goes straight back, the prophecy of the last emperor. When you put Barbarossa into a Google search, all but one reference is for Operation Barbarossa, the failed invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. Why it was called Barbarossa is curious. The ideological underpinning of the attack was to expand East and conquer Lebensraum for the Aryan race. Now, Barbarossa pursued many political initiatives, executed U-turns, and reoriented when necessary. One thing he never showed much interest in was the eastern expansion of the empire. That was the great ambition of Henry the Lion. When the name of Henry the Lion was proposed as the codename for the operation, apparently Hitler refused. He insisted to go in the name of an emperor instead of a duke, because well, it sounded better. Now, immediately after the war, Barbarossa is shape-shifting again. Friedrich Heer, an Austrian writer and intellectual, likened Barbarossa's policies in Italy to Hitler's activities in occupied Europe. He described the years between 1157 and 1167 in Italy as a lordship of horror that Germans had imposed on Italian cities. He blames all that on Reinald von Dassel, the chancellor of Barbarossa. After von Dassel's death, so he thought, Barbarossa reverted back to be a realistic medieval monarch, which resulted in a great flowering of art and culture. So Barbarossa is a sort of part-time Hitler. But come the Cold War and the reintegration of Western Germany into the European nations, Barbarossa is reinterpreted again. Now, not as an autocrat seeking world domination, but as a ruler who maintained close and friendly relationships with the kings of England and France. A primus into Paris, more like. The disastrous experienced the country had with the unified and powerful Germany led to a re-evaluation of the political fragmentation of the country, and hence the role of the princes in the Middle Ages. Suddenly, they are no longer the villains of the piece, but the starting point of the varied and decentralized German culture, its plethora of smaller and larger cities that are housing artists, writers, composers and playwrights, and it's Barbarossa's leniency towards the centrifugal powers that made Goethe and Schiller in Weimar a possibility. In that same vein, the 1977 Stauffer Exhibition that I mentioned at the very beginning of the series is staged in Stuttgart, and it turned into an unexpected success. It was meant not to celebrate the national or international importance of the Hohenstaufen family, but their roots in the ancient Duchy of Swabia, roughly equivalent of the newly created state of Baden-Württemberg. Minister-President Filbinger of Baden-Württemberg proclaimed that the objective of the Hohenstaufen had been a humane one. They never intended to establish an autocratic state, but aimed to provide a universal order of law and peace. Protection of the rights of the individual were at the heart of their policies, something to be proud of in German history as a counterpoint to the Nazi horrors. And, in a typical German twist, Filbinger had to resign a year later, having been accused of having pushed for the death penalty in the case of a desertion when he was a public prosecutor in the Navy during the war. His guilt is still in dispute. Whilst the Western Germans were flailing about trying to get to grips with their former national symbol, so did the East Germans. Initially, the Communists wanted to blow up the Kifoiser Memorial as a symbol of militarism. But the Soviets objected, and by 1990 they had found sufficient accommodation that one of the last stamps of the GDR showed the Kiffhäuser. Now, let's go for the last twist. The architect Bruno Schmitz, who designed the Kiffhäuser, and also built an even larger memorial of the Battle of the Nations near Leipzig, the Völkerschlachtdenkmal, the monument to Wilhelm I and Hermann the German and the Teutoburg Forest, as well as the Deutsche Eck in Koblenz. Now alongside this top trumps of German nationalism, he also designed the similarly sized memorial to the sailors and soldiers in Indianapolis, commemorating Americans who had died for freedom and democracy. The difference of ideology apparently did not translate into a material difference in design. The debate about the role of Barbarossa as a national symbol is still ongoing. Who knows what mythical shape he's going to take from here. In 2002, the state of Baden-Württemberg erected a steel on the Hohenstaufen, the initial home of the dynasty, Its inscription reads, Hohenstaufen, a mountain, a castle, a dynasty, an epoch, a myth. And with that, we put Barbarossa to bed. The next few episodes will attempt to paint a picture of Germany in and around 1190, similar to what we did about Germany in the year 1000. I have to ask for a bit of patience. Summer holidays are coming up and airlines and ferry companies have little respect for podcast schedules. I will try to stick to the Thursday morning release date, but please do not be upset if you sometimes find an episode is arriving later than usual, or if there are bigger gaps between them. And before I go, let me thank all of you supporting the show, in particular the patrons who so kindly signed up on patreon.com slash Germans. It's thanks to you this show does not have to start with me endorsing mattresses and meal kits. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others, hence bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes.